The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. our way through the Sermon on the Mount. We're in chapter 7 of Matthew. Familiar words, familiar passage, but I hope there's new power and new meaning each time we consider these things. If you want to follow, please have your Bible open at Matthew chapter 7. I'll begin at verse 7 through 11. These are the words of Jesus. He said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, would you give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven Give good things to those who ask him. This is the word of God. Many of you know the names of Corey Tenboom and her sister Betsy, both ladies with the Lord today, but well known from the mid to late 20th century when a book came out from Corey Tenboom called The Hiding Place, which was made into a film by the Billy Graham organization. These two Dutch sisters living in Amsterdam, you may recall, became well-known for being among other Christians who did the same thing as they created a secret compartment behind a bedroom in their home above a shop. And they, along with their father and brothers, uh, for some time, many months, hid Jewish refugees in that secret paneled quarter Uh, in their house, and several times their house was searched, and actually that room uh, just outside of the hidden place was searched, but they did not find it. But then one day came when the police apparently had been informed by someone. They came and found hidden refugees and arrested the ten booms. Corey and Betsy were taken to the infamous camp Robinsbrook was the name of the camp where these women were. I believe it was an all-women camp, a work camp where women were sent out to haul heavy concrete and lay railroad tracks and do all kinds of brutal work. And if they faltered and became sick or died, then they died, and their bodies were simply hauled out of the way. Well, Betsy was probably the spiritual sustainer of not only her sister Corey, but others in that camp, and she lived a life of real prayer before the Lord. One day, Betsy announced to Corey and her bunkmates that she had prayed, I think she just told Corey this, that, that she and Corey would be set free from the prison no later than New Year's Day of 1945. It was late in the year already. Betsy was not well. 
And in fact, Betsy died in mid-December 1944 in the camp hospital. And then just a short time later, before New Year's, just weeks after her sister died, Corey was called and unconditionally released from the prison, which was a great surprise because it was later found out that that was a clerical error and women her age were supposed to have been exterminated, killed. The question is, do you believe God answered Betsy's prayer that she and Corey would be free by the new year? Betsy certainly was free from all suffering. She was present forever with her beloved Lord. And Corey was physically released from prison to return to years of fruitful ministry during the last part of the war and afterward for many years to follow. God mightily used her. But the answer to the prayer was different than what both Betsy and Corey probably expected when Betsy told her sister of what she thought the Lord would do. Our text today is not the first teaching in the Sermon on the Mount on prayer. We've had others on the subject. Jesus has warned against empty babbling, mere repeating of phrases that mean very little. He also warned against posing in a hypocritical or theatrical way to try to impress other people of your spirituality in public. But here now is another word on prayer, and I only realized as I began to study this this week how the Lord ordered this text about the greatness of our Heavenly Father to be on Father's Day. He did that. I didn't. Here's a text about prayer with three important words. How much more? Those words are carefully underlined in my Bible because they form the theme of this whole text, I think. I want to give you three ideas from this short text today. First of all, declaring to you that God's answers to prayer are rarely what we initially ask for. Secondly, that God's answers to prayer may at first appear to be worthless or even harmful. And thirdly, that God answers his disciples according to what we may call the how much more principle. The first observation here is that God's answers to prayer are rarely what we initially ask for. No matter how many times we denounce it, Christians of all ages and all levels of experience are still somewhat devoted to that methodology or that concept of prayer that I just always refer to as the vending machine. Put in your money, used to be a quarter. Quarter doesn't buy you anything in a vending machine today, usually a couple dollars, I think. Get your Coke, get your Sprite, get your candy bar, whatever it is. And if you push button A3, you expect to get the candy bar that was under A3, not the candy bar that was under B12. Vending machine concepts of prayer are everywhere among Christians. In other words, I ask God for something specific, and he ought to give me that specific thing that I ask for. If he doesn't, prayer doesn't work. Prayer's a fake. Prayer's a sham. People say, I asked God to spare my mother's life from cancer. That certainly was a good thing. My mother was a good and godly woman. Certainly God would want to spare her, and if prayer works, then he will spare her life. Or I asked God to give me this job that I was a final contender for, the other fellow I know is not as worthy as I am, and surely God wants me to have that job. 
I didn't get the job, so prayer doesn't work. Americans are pragmatic people. We like immediate and measurable results to things. And we expect them that way. Our prayers are mostly couched in some form of give me, comfort me, heal me, spare me, and you supply a few more verbs. Prayer's effectiveness is measured by whether it works, whether it brings a reward of the exact thing that we have asked for. Is that what Jesus is saying when he says, ask and it shall be given to you? Ask and the specific thing you ask for will be given to you. Well, actually, it doesn't have those extra words, does it? It says ask. It says seek. It says knock. There's a persistent process advised there of not just my punching the button and putting the coin in to get some trinket or reward or something maybe a lot better than a trinket that I think is what I want or need. It's implied here certainly rather clearly in verse 8, Jesus said, everyone who asks receives, whoever seeks finds, whoever knocks it will be open. Does it say everyone who asks receives the exact thing they asked for? Does it say whoever seeks finds the exact thing they wanted? Does it say the one who knocks, it'll be open to the specific reward that they sought? It does not. It says that you will enter into a realm where God can reward you, and God can answer you, and God can do things for you that you haven't probably even begun to imagine. These three verbs are linked together here, ask, seek, knock. It's a process, a process, an expedition of discovery that requires some perseverance. You begin with a simple request, and you pursue until you see an answer from the Lord, which may or may not look like the initial request. You say, well, well, that's trickering. that's, That's God kind of deceiving. He says, ask, but I'm going to receive something different. That's not very good. Well, it's only not good if you have the arrogance to assume that what you asked for was the best possible thing you could have, when quite often the thing you asked for was not at all what's good for you, and you didn't know it, and you needed to learn that in a process of discovery of prayer. You can come and say, here you are, let's say a new college graduate, just out of college, got that brand new BA or BS degree, and you think, wow, I've got the world by its tail now. Employers are going to beat a path to my door. All I have to do is send out a resume or send out 10 resumes, and I'll have 10 job offers. I can just sit home and watch Netflix for a couple weeks, and the job offers will come in. Well, by all means, try that, college graduates, but I think I can advise you that you're not likely to see that many job offers that way. You're going to have to use the phone and use your network and get out there and ring some doorbells and do everything you possibly can along with your prayers to see what path the Lord is going to lead you on. And gradually, perseverance in asking and seeking and knocking will bring you the Lord's will, but it may be a process. It may even be a process with ups and downs and many disappointments in it. Promises of God don't simply fall out of the sky upon our lazy heads. 
There's a pa passage in James chapter 4 where the Lord says you do not have because you do not ask. And we could add to that without distorting the passage, you do not have because you asked foolishly or flippantly. You needed to ask and seek and knock and pursue to find out what the Lord was going to answer in regular, intimate conversation with the Lord. Luke 18, 7 has words of Jesus that go along with this. He said, Shall not God answer his elect who cry night and day to him? Will he keep on putting them off? The obvious answer to the rhetorical question is, Of course not. Of course not. He's your compassionate, all-powerful, all-wise God. He will see, the text says, that they get justice and they get it quickly. However, I'm going on with that Luke 18 verse, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? In other words, will he find his people still really seeking, pursuing, and believing that he is going to fulfill the promises that he has made? Or have they already turned away and said, well, God's not interested. He's not doing what I dictated to him. So I guess prayer doesn't work. Ask and seek and knock describes a process of pursuit and discovery that goes after the will of God. Well, secondly, our text teaches that God's answers to prayer may at first appear to be harmful or even worthless. Where is that in this text? Just look at what's described there. A set of comparisons, verse 9 and following. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or asks for a fish to eat, would give him a serpent? Why those comparisons exactly? The, the point almost every interpreter thinks of that is that a stone, think of a seaside stone by the Sea of Galilee, perhaps a rounded stone, small, you could hold it in your hands, round or oval-shaped, smooth by the waters. It looks like Palestinian bread, small loaves of bread. The important thing is what it looks like. Think of a snake from the ground, or maybe if there was a, a, an eel that could bite or harm that might look like another creature from the sea that would be quite good to eat. The point again is similarity of appearance. And people receive things from God and they say, oh, I needed bread, but this is a stone, or at least it looks like one. And the, Jesus is saying, is God going to deceive you? Is he going to give you things that will break your teeth or, or cause a, you to get a poisonous uh, bite from a reptile that's going to harm you? No, he wouldn't do that. But it might be that the appearance would be deceiving. And yet human fathers know how to do for you what is good and give you things that, that are helpful to you. Do you think your heavenly father is going to give you a gift of a poisonous snake that would bite you and hurt you instead of a fish to nourish you? It might be that it looks that way for a time, but he wouldn't do that. And he's talking here about the privileged relationship that a Christian has with God as his father. I can remember well how much of the appeal of the presidency of John F. Kennedy in the early 60s was not only that the Kennedys were young, 
It always amazes me to think now that Mrs. Kennedy was only in her early 30s at that time, and John himself was not yet 45. And they had young children, and that was such a novelty for the American nation because we had not had a president in the White House with little children. So what a photo op. And I know there was a, a spread in Life magazine that was much seen and exclaimed over one day when uh, apparently uh, President Kennedy allowed his little children, Caroline and John John, he was called, to come into the Oval Office, and John John was playing hide-and-seek under the president's desk, peering out around, and Caroline was romping around the room, and the photographers had a field day, and Americans smiled, and wow, how we loved having a president that could open up the privileged oval room of power for the whole Western world for two little children to come and see Daddy. Well, doesn't that remind us that we as Christian believers in Jesus Christ are told we are adopted children of God, privileged in our access to Him? Hebrews 4.16 says we have this privileged place that we can come boldly to the throne of grace and find grace to help us in our time of need. We are like Caroline and John John in the president's office. Isn't that an amazing thought? Our God and Father receives us that way. We are his chosen, adopted children in Christ. He knew us before we were born. He knew all the days that were planned for us. He knew when and how he would bring salvation alive in us by the stirring of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is here just presenting a simple, powerful argument. Do you think this eternal Father who is all wise, all gracious, all loving is going to invite you into his privileged presence that way to trick you or connive to bring you harm as he responds to your prayers? Maybe you think something he's given you looks like a rattlesnake, but it is, in fact, food for you to eat if you would see it rightly. Maybe you think it's a rock, but it's really bread. And you're asked to understand your father wouldn't do it any different way once you see things from his viewpoint. Thirdly, God answers his children by what I call the how much more principle. I love the use of those three words here. People from different religions pray in accordance with their concept of their idea of God. We pray in accord with the concept of the only true God. If your idea of God is that he's unpredictable or vengeful or angry, then you're going to want to appease him or, or approach him with fear and trepidation, but that's not the biblical God. You don't have to be cautious about him and, you know, get him in a good mood to hope that maybe he'll treat you well. That's not the biblical God. That's the God of many pagan religions, perhaps, not the God of the Bible. A deeper knowledge of who God really is in his grace and his generosity and his fatherhood prepares you to pray. It prepares you to hear Jesus saying, how much more will your father give the excellent gifts to his children? Look what he did to provide for you. He sent his son to the cross to take your sin, to be in your place, to have your unrighteousness counted against him. He put him there in a place of rejection where he had to cry out and say, 
Oh God, why have you forsaken me? He didn't call him Father in that hour because he couldn't see the fatherhood of God. All he could know was that he was the only son, firstborn of creation. And he said, My God, why have you forsaken me and put me here? Well, God did that to secure your relationship to him, to secure you being his child for all eternity. And yet, Romans 8.26 says a remarkable thing. It says that even we Christians do not always know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit of God intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. Prayer is a kind of school, a kind of relationship with the Holy Spirit as our intercessor where we learn and grow as we seek and knock And we come more and more closer and closer to wanting the things and asking for the things that God wants. We have to understand that most of the time when we begin to pray, we're not asking for the right things. We don't even know what to ask for, but we learn what to ask for in the process of prayer. I love the Old Testament account of Jacob in Genesis 32. I've preached on it before you. Remember, Jacob, how he was a deceiver. He left his household having tricked his father and tricked his brother. And then after being away for years, he came back a wealthy man with huge herds and many wives and all kinds of riches. And yet he was approaching his brother, who was also a rich and powerful man. And the word was that Esau was riding out with 400 men. That didn't sound like a peace party. And Jacob, the night before he knew this encounter would take place, was alone by the brook Jabbok, isolating himself from his family and his herds. And I think he was was basically getting ready to die because he thought this was it. Esau is going to clobber me. But he wrestled, it says, until dawn with a man who appeared, mysterious man who apparently was the angel of the Lord, and he held on, and they wrestled, and they struggled, and finally he told his, his divine combatant, I will not let you go until you bless me. That's what prayer is, asking and seeking and knocking and holding on to seek the blessing of the Lord. John Stott, who wrote wonderful things about the Sermon on the Mount as he did in so many of his books. John Stott, let me quote him here a couple sentences. He said, The reason why God's giving his best depends on our asking for it in prayer is not because God is ignorant before we inform him, nor is he reluctant until we persuade him. The requirement to pray has more to do with what's missing in us than with God. The question is not whether God is ready to give, but whether we are ready to receive. You don't believe that, but it's true. You need to hold on and wrestle in prayer and ask and seek and knock and watch your requests be turned and changed into requests that are in conformity to the will of God because you're not ready to receive the great things of God when you first go to him. I think that's true of all of us in one way or another. I have learned if God did pledge himself, which he did not, 
to immediately give me whatever thing I asked him for, that would be terrible because I would destroy myself. I would ask for foolish things that would eat me alive or ruin me. I want to pray instead, Lord, please spare me from receiving every stupid, immature thing that I am initially going to ask you for. Hold me back. Hold back your good things, your how much more things, until I've been shaped and made ready as a vessel to receive them. The how much more principle to me is summarized in a wonderful benediction from Ephesians 3.20. Paul wrote, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more, how much more, than all that we could ask or imagine according to his power at work in us, to him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ through all generations now and forever. Amen. Thanks be to God. Father, we don't know much about prayer. We should, but we haven't been good learners. We've been very immature. We've thrown requests at you and said, oh, didn't get that. I guess prayer doesn't work. Forgive our foolishness. Draw us on into relationship to you that we would ask and seek and knock and watch our foolish demands. How amazing that we would ever demand something from you. Allow us to have that Jacob experience of I will not let you go until you bless me. Cause us to hold on, to examine, to think, to ponder, and then to enjoy and delight in the blessing that you will bring so much more than we ever could imagine because of Jesus. We thank you in his name. Amen.